Hey, good morning. Isn't the weather awesome? Hey, we're such wimps in the Northwest. Now we get nice weather. What do we say? It's too hot. We're so funny. Oh, my gosh. But, yeah, it's great. We, uh, I want to thank Zach because last week we went uh, to Eastern Washington and uh, went over to Daroga State Park. And he said, let me just cover it. And, you know, then you don't have to come back. And I really appreciate that. So that was great. And if you did not hear last week, there were several that shared from the Nicaragua trip. So Roger and then Ann and then Alex. And if you haven't, you can go to the website, download it. It's well worth listening to. And uh, so be able to do that. But yeah, we went over there and uh, I believe uh, Norfew's first family camp was held there at Daroga. And that, that camp, the wind blew, started rolled the tents away. It did that for us too. It was great. And you know it had to be hot because if a white guy like me turns brown, it had to be pretty warm over there. But we had a great time. You know, one of the things we did is we did church in the park. And uh, we were going to go to church and then we said, well, you know, there's enough of us. Why don't we just do church right here in the park? So it was, you know, in the early morning, the sun was got in the shade and sat around in a circle and sang and, and shared. Man, it was a great time. So there's a lot of creative things you can do on vacation. My encouragement is take a vacation, but don't take a vacation from obedience with Jesus, right? And so wherever we are, do church, have church, be at church. That's a good thing. Uh, we're going to be talking about... Um, being ambassadors for the kingdom this morning. And so uh, I'm going to ask my good friend Sandy Stillwell to come up. So Sandy, where are you? Come forward. There we go. And uh, we'll flash this slide up here on the screen for you. We uh, had the Nicaragua trip. Sandy is going to be taking off and going to Haiti, and we wanted to just give you a little glimpse of the story and the picture and where she's going and what it's about. So, Okay, um... In 2010, I went to Africa, and it's been since then I haven't gone on any big mission trip. Um, I just kept getting the feeling that it's definitely something that God was calling me to do. And I thought I was going to go back to um, Tanzania when um, Wilson and his wife thought that they were going to go. Um, and that God just kind of closed some doors there, but he opened the door for me to go to Haiti with um, my friend, um, second row, that side, um, Micah and Carol there. Carol's husband is the pastor at the Baptist Church in Concordia, Kansas. Their team has been going to a town called Bataille um, that was completely devastated at the earthquake since the same that year. They've been sending two teams a year, rebuilding the church and school there. And Pastor Marcel, there at the bottom, he is the um, pastor that helps raise up um, men to go to the smaller villages and once the earthquake hit and de- destroyed his village, he wasn't able to do that anymore. So they have been rebuilding his, um, his building. So they'll be, the school will be back up, the church will be running, and he'll be able to continue his work. So we'll be finishing this school building, doing the, um, the dedication. Mm-hmm. And then we will be going out to those smaller villages and evangelizing. And we'll start doing what you'll hear um, Steve talk about a little bit later, and that's... Um, taking God's word to to other places. And the biggest thing about Haiti is a lot of, they have a lot of information, um, a lot of Christians there, but they don't understand that God is the only thing that they need, so they still rely a little bit on voodoo. So they'll be Christian, and they'll go to church, they'll have quiet times, they'll do all that, but if something really big comes up in their lives, they back it up a little bit with the voodoo. They just need to understand that God is the only thing that they need. What does a trip like that do for you? Why do you do it? Um, I think it gives me the ability to share with other people the things that God did in my life before I was a Christian. 
that um, he has forgiven me for. Mm-hmm. So the things that, um, you know, like you, you've said before, not all of us um, are, are perfect. There, were, there was another Sandy before there was mm-hmm. this Sandy. And um, they can see that God is all you need. He can get you through all of those things that happened. Okay. I can share that. So, Sandy, you're leaving when? Uh, Saturday. Saturday. Okay. So would you stand with me? We're going to pray for her. Father, what a privilege last week to just hear the stories of Nicaragua and what you did on that trip. And then as we stand here this morning, we are sending Sandy out and uh, she's going in faith that you will use the trip and her uh, for your kingdom. And Lord, we pray for safety. We also pray for an adventure. We pray that you will be engaged in ways that she will definitely see your fingerprints on the trip and will have stories to share with others. And may it provide her uh, not just motivation for there, but for here as well. And we ask this in your name. Amen. You. All right. You may be seated. Uh, if you want, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians 5. So your Bible or your iPad or your phone or whatever you use at this point. I still use the book. I like it. Uh, but we're going to be talking about, uh, we've been talking about responsibility. We've been going through our um, mission statement and we talked about uh, worship and we talked about serving and now we're going to be talking about sharing. And again, those are not one, two, three. In other words, worship is the most important, serving second most, sharing is the third. It's more like the Godhead, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three uh, different roles, equal value. And so likewise, these are three different descriptions, but equal value, right? So worship is an important value. Serving is an important value. Sharing is an important value. Think of them more that way, right? Across the board, uh, lining up that way. But um, the other thing I want to do is when we think of the Apostle Paul, we kind of think of him as fossilized. And what I mean by that is he was the apostle. He was the theologian. He wrote most of the New Testament. And so we kind of think of him in cardboard, right? Frozen kind of deal. We don't think of him as a person. We don't think of him as uh, the person who was deeply affected by Jesus and then out of that wrote some of the things that he wrote because of what he had gone through. And I want you to think of Paul as a person this morning. I want you to think about him before he knew Christ and what it was like to experience some of the things that he wrote so that when we look at what he wrote, you can see through that and go, Wow, that really rocked his boat. No wonder he says it that way. Does that make sense? All right. So let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, we're going to talk about sharing your word. And we're talking about uh, going through a lot of significant pictures this morning that you lay out. And so we seek you this morning that you would uh, re-energize our hearts for finding a way to share with people that we know. And we ask for that favor in your name. Amen. All right. So this week we're going to go through more of the theology of it. Next week we're going to go through the practical side of it and uh, tie the two together. But starting with this verse here in um, 2 Corinthians, we read this, From now on we regard no one as from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. And we know those verses, right? And we think of those verses and we go, oh yeah, that's awesome and that's the born again experience. And that, but we don't think of them often through Paul's eyes. Right? What, what did that look like uh, through Paul? Um, 
When one comes into the kingdom, I think we'd all agree that we have a tendency to see things differently than we did before we knew Jesus, right? Uh, we go, oh, that, oh, that, oh, okay, there, right? And the same was true with Paul. If you think of Paul, Paul saw a lot of things from a political, cultural, religious a status sort of thing. So in other words, uh, prestige and ambition and um, uh, creds, right? Having street creds, having uh, people put things by your name. Uh, Paul worked very hard. He was very ambitious to be the highest in the sect of the Pharisees. Um, he was a driven person that way because in Paul's world, it was a world of brownie points. The more brownie points you earn, the better status you had. And therefore, it was about the status. It had nothing to do with God, really. It had more to do with what you earned with God. It was a, a system of works that he had gotten caught up with. And, and Paul saw that. Before he was saved, he saw it that way. He saw it in terms of status, uh, uh, particularly, I would say, uh, religious and political but after being saved, he saw two basic categories. The two categories he saw were within Christ, those who were in Christ. And then the other category that he saw was those who were outside of Christ. And those who were outside of Christ had to get moved over here to the category that they were in Christ. And so Paul, he uses the language, there's no Jew or Scythian, slave or free. We could say no gay or straight. We could say no Republican versus Democrat. We could say all that. Paul saw those categories as in Jesus and outside of Jesus. Right? And particularly, what we forget is his own recognition that he had been outside. Whoops, I'm in the wrong category. Now, Paul ran into that in kind of an astonishing way, right? He was going to Damascus. And um, literally got knocked off his horse or donkey or whatever he was riding and uh, met the resurrected Christ. So it was kind of like, whoa, I had no category for this. And have you been there, right? No category for the things that Jesus is doing in your life. And so this new world view that he had, this basic frame of reference, and, and he wished to share with others the same basic message that he experienced himself, that they would or they could and in Paul's language, he uses something interesting. He uses reconciled. He uses that a lot of reconciliation language. Um, the Expositor's Bible commentary says that uh, for Paul, this is especially true of how he saw Jesus himself. Um, so before, if you look in those verses, so now we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Really, you could put in there Paul saying, I once regarded Christ this way, but I do so no longer. Well, how did he look at Jesus before? Well, before Jesus was kind of this itinerant preacher who said some things he probably shouldn't have said and, and riled up a whole bunch of people. And we can't do anything about the itinerant preacher because we already killed him. He's out of the picture. But his, believer, his followers are taking it too far, so we've got to snuff them out. And so Paul was not just passive, he was active. He was aggressive. He was violent against the kingdom of God. Right? Uh, you may know some people like that are very hostile. Paul was extremely hostile towards Jesus, towards uh, Christianity. And uh, they, they needed to be dealt with forcefully. And, and so he, before he saw crisis, you'd see anybody. Oh, he's a guy. He kind of did some stuff. And, you know, I didn't like what he did, so I'm trying to stop it. After, what does he see? The Savior of the world. 
It says that Paul got knocked off his donkey, that a flash of lightning occurred, that the rest of the room hit, ran for the ditch. And, and Jesus said to Paul, uh, Paul, Paul, and Paul said, who, who are you? And he said, is I, Jesus, who you're persecuting? And then he threw something else in there and he said, hey, Paul, it's hard to kick against the goads. Right? We don't get that, but growing up on a farm, a goad is a, a sharp pointed stick. And so if you went out to get the cows for milking and there were a few that decided it wasn't milking time, you'd help encourage them that it was milking time. And how you did that by taking the point in the stick and putting it right in their butt and they would have a tendency to move, right? Because that hurt. And I think we need to remember that even today that it's hard to kick against the goads. You know, I, our whole culture is kind of swinging against Jesus and that kind of stuff. But it's hard to kick against the goads. He is the resurrected Savior of the universe. And it's hard to kick against Him, and it's hard to kick against His principles. And we need to remember that. Whether we do it personally or whether we see others doing it, uh, you can say, you know, it's hard to kick against the goads, and you can pray for that person. Because ultimately, that goad is designed to point them towards Jesus so that they wouldn't be outside of Christ, that they would be inside of Christ, found within Him. And Paul learned that it was hard to kick against. So he didn't just see Jesus anymore as an itinerant preacher. He saw Jesus as the king of the universe. It changed the way he saw life. It changed the way he saw the world. Like, whoa! My goodness! And so he couldn't even uh, describe some of the experiences. As a matter of fact, he was told not to explain some things. And I often say, well, gee, if Jesus just showed up like that for me, I'd, I'd be effective too. Be careful what you pray for, right? Sometimes when God reveals certain things, then you're responsible for what you know. And it's a tremendous burden. I always tell people, you know, once you know it, then you're responsible for it. There are some things you don't want to know. But when God reveals himself, you need to take that that way. Uh, But what the question is, what so changed Paul? It isn't necessarily the saved language, although he was saved. It wasn't necessarily the saved language. The language Paul uses, you find it written all over the New Testament, is this reconciled theme. Let's look at that for a second. If you look at the next verses, 18 and 19, it says, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, Jesus did not live for himself. We just sang it in the songs we were singing, he gave up his life for our sake, and therefore, since he laid down his life for us, we should lay down our life for him. Right? It's the equivalent. And this, Paul says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. As Jesus reconciled the world to himself and saved us, we've been now given a sacred trust, a ministry. Right? And that ministry is sharing Jesus with other people. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. Now, this is a rabbit trail, but I'm going to take it anyways. Right? We have a hard time hearing those words. Not counting men's sins against them. We think Jesus forgave all our sins before we knew Christ. And then, after we knew Christ, we should have known better. And therefore, since we've sinned after we've known Christ, we're in trouble. Not just a little trouble, big trouble. I mean, when we get to the gates, it's going to be, boom, lights on, and oh, by the way, there's so-and-so. And And I'll bet all of you didn't know so-and-so did this. 
And it's going to be a time of exposure, and it's going to be a time of shame, and it's going to be time... That's not what the text says. The text says this. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. That is true this morning. He is not counting your sins against you. He's not counting my sins against me. And we need to hear that because here's what Satan does. Satan says, yeah, he does, but not that one. That was particularly bad. That one's not forgiven. So you're in trouble. You're never going to be spoken to. You're never going to be used by Jesus the way you always wanted to be because, you know, you did that. You're never going to hear from him. He's never going to really come to your aid. And when he doesn't, you should know it's because you did that sin. And Satan is relentless on that. And I want to say this morning, that voice is not from God. That is not the voice of the Holy Spirit. We need to get a clue that we have a very, very aggressive enemy who's really good at knowing our insecure spots and pricking at those places where we have lost confidence. And he knows where the battles have been. He knows what the weaknesses are. He knows where we failed. And he knows that we have a hard time with that. So he goes after it and he says, he flips it and says, God is counting all your sins against you and you are not reconciled with him. This passage says God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. That is fantastic news. That is the greatest news of the universe. That someone said, I will not hold that against you. I mean, we know what it's like to not be reconciled, right? We've all got, well, maybe in other churches. Okay, but, right, we've got people that we wish it could be reconciled with and, we, and you try to think it through and you go, oh, what a disaster, what a wreck. I just hope they don't show up, right? Just, ah, because we can't see our way through it. And because we can't see our way through on this level, we think God's the same way. If we can't fix these, then God isn't going to reconcile with us. And it's, it's just a wreck. And, and what we hear is we're not really reconciled, but the truth is we can be reconciled. That is the greatness and the difference. That's the best news in the world. Hey, you come to the Lord and he will not hold your sins against you. Therefore, why shouldn't we hold our sins against each other? Because our sins aren't being held against us. That's what makes a Christian different than everybody else. We don't hold grudges. Or at least we're not supposed to. Right? Can you see why we're not supposed to? Why don't we lie? Because God doesn't lie. Why don't we steal? Because God doesn't steal. Why shouldn't we be greedy? We shouldn't be greedy because God's not greedy. Why should we not hold grudges? Because God doesn't hold grudges. That makes sense. And we've got to get it on that level. God is trying to reconcile. He wants to be reconciled with us as people. And so it's a very powerful thing. And why is it so powerful? Who's writing that? Paul. Okay, and here's where we think of him as cardboard. Well, of course he wrote that he was the great apostle and missionary and he had to write religious stuff. That's what apostles do. No, 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 no. Why did he write that? Because he knew what it was like to not be reconciled. He knew what it was like to be outside of Christ. He knew what it was like to be exhausted from life and marching the ladder of success and and ambition and doing all that kind of stuff. And he knew what it was like to just be zapped. He was sitting there and going, I'm outside. And the fact that God would reconcile with him was astonishing. 
It was absolutely astonishing to him. And therefore, in this passage, what uh, Paul says is, if you take it a little bit farther, go to verses 20 and 21, just drop down two more verses. He gives us a new title. He says, we're ambassadors. We're ambassadors for the kingdom. It says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. By the way, this is the only place in the New Testament where this term is used. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When, when Paul saw reconciled, what did he see? Two things. Number one, he was awed with Christ. He no longer saw Jesus as this itinerant preacher, dude. Or just a person. He saw him as the rest of He was like, whoa. But then the second thing that absolutely blew Paul away when he's writing this language is he saw the normity, the greatness of Jesus' heart. That Jesus the King would reconcile someone like Paul. Paul was violent. Paul was bitterly opposed. Paul was an aggressor. Paul did awful things. Be, I bet you we'll be astonished when we get to heaven to find out what actually happened. And Paul says, and I was reconciled. That's not just good theology. That's a real life experience. He's going, I am so grateful God's love. And because God did that for me, I can be nothing else but an ambassador for him. When we talk about ambassadors, uh, that's an interesting term. So I grabbed my good old Thorndike and Barnhart Dictionary out of high school, dated 1941. That's not when I graduated. <laughs> and it says, the highest, an ambassador is the highest ranking representative sent by one government or ruler to another. Right? So we know how that, the United States of America, we have ambassadors and they are sent out right, by our president, by our government, sent out to different places. And they are to represent the interest and the message of the United States of America. Uh, and I think when you think of ambassadors, a couple things. Ambassadors have to be trustworthy. right? They are assigned what we say a post of duty in this country. And therefore they have to be Trustworthy. Um, it's never a good thing when an ambassador doesn't represent his government well or stay true to the message which, which he or she was sent. It doesn't do well when an ambassador says, yeah, you know, that's what they wanted me to say and sent me for, but, you know, really, here's the deal we can work. How well does that go? When that message gets back to the sending government. You said what? And likewise, we can't say... Oh yeah, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through Him. Well, that's what Jesus said. But you know, it's really it's different than that because God's love, and you know, there's a lot of ways to God. That's not being a good ambassador. That's not being accurate to what God is sending uh, us for. Nor is it a good thing when an ambassador doesn't convey the message they were sent. Okay, here you're an ambassador. I'm sending you this, and then they get to the other country and they say nothing. What message does your country have? None. Um, were you supposed to share anything with us? Nope. Um, why are you here? Well, you've got a nice country and some nice beaches, and I thought I'd come on vacation. Right? See, an ambassador for that, what we would say is self-pleasing. That they are there for their own interest, not for the interest of which they were sent. 
Now, in this, there's a ton of fine lines, but let me delineate it a little bit. Is there anything wrong with vacations? Nothing wrong with vacations at all. Matter of fact, we need them, and they're important, and Jesus took breaks. Is there anything wrong with having stuff? No, as long as they're not idols, and the things God's allowed to have, that's fine. Is there anything wrong with making money? Nope. As long as you don't worship it and don't live for it, and you live for Jesus instead and use it and honor Him with the first fruits of it, you're in great shape. Is there anything, right? Is there anything wrong with that stuff? No, not necessarily. But there is something wrong when all that stuff takes up all my time and that's what I'm invested in instead of being an ambassador for the kingdom. Right? There's a difference between living for the kingdom and being self-pleasing. And only Jesus really knows where that line runs for all of us here this morning. And so there's times where Jesus goes, you know, you did the right thing, you didn't do it with the right motive. The other times you'll say, oh, you know, you had the right motive. You really didn't do the right thing. You ever had that? Or you need to bend over this side of the line a little bit because you're you're doing this. A lot of times when people go to Hawaii, I say, oh, way to suffer for Jesus, right? And we all go, oh, I'd love to suffer for Jesus in Hawaii because that's our idea of really fun is God would just let me do what I want to do. We forget we've been given a sacred ministry, a sacred call that we are ambassadors for his kingdom. Always that we are to share the good news of Jesus uh, with other people. The other thing about uh, being an ambassador um, is Unger's Bible Dictionary adds this concept. It says, ambassadors were considered distinguished and privileged messengers. And their dignity was rather that of heralds. So we know this, right? Christmas time, hark the herald. Angels sing, right? Glad to know that two of you know that song. It's good. Hark the herald angels sing. Right? In this case, what are the angels heralding? They are heralding the coming of the Christ child, the coming of the king, the coming of the savior of the world. All right? Now, it's no longer Christmas time. It's after Christmas time. And now we are the heralds. We are the ambassadors or heralds for that kingdom. So instead of hark the herald angels sing, it becomes hark the ambassadors of Christ share. We are heralding the coming of the king. We are heralding his presence, his offer to reconcile with those and not hold men's sins against them. Now the question comes with, okay, why or how or what would push me to do that? Because there's a lot of wrong motives in this, right? You could do this out of guilt. You can do this out of have to. You can do this out of uh, Christian obligation, whatever that is, right? I'm Christian obligation, okay? Um, we, we can do all that stuff. That's not the motive at all. When Paul was talking about this stuff, when he was talking about being reconciled and being an ambassador, he was talking about how the love of Christ compelled him, how the love of Christ pushed him, propelled him to do this sort of thing. If you look, uh, go back up a couple verses, 14 and 15, I kept those from us at first because I didn't want you to see him right away. Now go back up to him. Look at verses 14 and 15. It says, For Christ's love compels us, i.e. pushes, propels us. Christ's love compels. It's a compelling internal drive for me. What he did for me, I must do for others. Because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all. Listen to this that those who live should no longer live for themselves, i.e. a self-pleasing life, but for him who died for them and was raised again from the dead. 
i.e. when I understand what Jesus has done for me, I reciprocate in the same way. Jesus was selfless. I become selfless. Jesus didn't leave a self-pleasing life. Philippians said he gave up everything that it meant to be God, to do what he did for us. Therefore, I don't hang on to the things that are mine or my rights. Because I'm compelled. Why? Not out of religious obligation, but out of Christ's love. Uh, ESV says it controls us. In other words, the love of Christ harnesses us and sends us into right directions. Just like you put a saddle on a horse. When you put a saddle on a horse, does that make the horse any less powerful? No. It just means now that horse can be steered in a positive direction. Likewise, the love of Christ controls us or saddles us so that our life can go in a positive direction for the kingdom. These are the things. That's why... Uh, that's what compelled Paul. His awe of Christ is how Christ had reached out to love him and reconcile him. He said, how can I do anything else? So this is our mandate. Matthew 28, we said this two weeks ago. All authority, Jesus says, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And can you make disciples if you don't share the message? No, you can't have a family unless you have babies. Once you've got babies, then you're going to have a family, right? Likewise, you can't have disciples till you have people who come to faith and are reconciled. That's what Paul's trying to get the message across here. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I command you. And surely I am with you always. And what's the last phrase on there? To the end of the age. Here's what I want to point out. I don't care if we're living in the last times because it says Jesus is still with us. He is the Savior of the world then. He is the Savior of the world now. He is present then. He's present now. And our world wants to write him off and wants to write his word off. And wants to, They can kick against the goads all they want. He is still here. You know, it's interesting. I'm reading through the Bible and uh, I'm in... Uh, I'm reading through that stretch, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Ezekiel, right? And I know a lot of you just go, ah, gag, choke. I love those parts, okay? To me, it's the richest part of the Bible. And uh, I just got done reading Jeremiah. And what's interesting in Jeremiah, and I know I've seen this before, but it just stood out to me this time. The signature imprint and piece of evidence in Jeremiah used that the God of Israel was the living and only true God was the fact that he was the God who made or designed the earth and then held it together by his power. And go in Jeremiah and check it out. A lot of the opening quotes are about the God who designed this world and then holds it together by his power. That was the signature evidence uh, or a claim given to the God, Jehovah, that he was the God who designed this earth and designed uh, and, and holds it together by the power of his word. And I think that's fascinating because, you know, we've got all kinds of ideas about our earth and planet and that kind of stuff. But I want to say something this morning. It's Jesus' planet. You know how I know that? Because he made it. He designed it. This is his world. He's not going to abandon his world. It's his world. And he's not going to abandon the people on it. They're his people. And so he's going to be with us till the end of the age. Why? Because it's his age. He's in control of that. And so he is the God who holds together the world. So that means the chair you're sitting on, if Jesus were to yawn, 
You're all on your behinds. Okay? But not just the chairs. The very fabric of the nucleus of the molecules that hold your body together, if he blinks, they go. We don't think about that. Therefore, we get bored with God. We're not in awe of him at all. And we just go, yeah, whatever. And of his message, we don't think much. And Paul was shocked. He was in awe. When he was escorted into heaven, shown he just couldn't get over it. And so Jesus says he'll be with us. And this is precisely where the discussion comes back in from two weeks ago when we were talking about, I mentioned Kyle Eidelman's book called Not a Fan. And the idea there is if you watch a football game or like uh, today's World Cup, right, and you're going to have 85,000 people and uh, you've got, you know, the teams on the field who desperately need rest and you've got people in the stands who desperately need exercise, right? But we kind of like that picture because we can stand on the sideline and applaud. Yeah, go, right? If it's a Seahawks game or a Husky game or a Cougar game or whatever, we, we sit on the sideline and applause, right? If you're out there with your grandkids, you applaud the game. And we're fans. So what's nice about being a fan is I don't have to engage. I can just sit back and applaud. But this says, no, no, we are not the fans. We are the team. In other words, Jesus is the coach and we are the team on the field carrying out the game, in this case, it's the assignment of the gospel. We are his ambassadors, his sent representatives. We are his witnesses. And we need to be actively sharing in the story. Why? Because that's why we were sent. That was the purpose that we were sent with. Now, what keeps us from uh, fulfilling this? I just grabbed four easy things here. Uh, I think you'll recognize them. First of all, fear. Why don't we share? Fear. I scared. Right? You ever do that? I scared. Now, I know that that's a little kid, but aren't there a lot of little kids living inside of us? I scared Jesus. Uh-uh. I scared. Right? And fear is powerful. I mean, uh, just think about uh, Peter in the courtyard where he denied Jesus. I mean, we're talking about a very courageous person, but he saw how it was unraveling. He saw Jesus arrested. He saw the whole thing fall apart. And not just once, but three times he denied that he even knew Jesus. And it says that Jesus looked at Peter. I don't know how that worked, but there must have been a gap or through the courtyard or whatever. Jesus' eyes caught Peter and said, then the rooster crowed. Peter, remember what Jesus said? And Peter came undone. I am absolutely astonished that Peter didn't commit suicide after that. And if it hadn't been for Jesus' incredible words of affirmation later to restore him to ministry, that would have been the last time we ever heard of Peter. Right? What happened to Peter? Why did he, but he was afraid. It, the, the circumstances turned and he was afraid. Any of you ever been there? You know the Lord told you to go knock on your neighbor's door, but you're scared. So we, we came in that way. Pressure. Um, a lot of times... Again, Peter, remember when they were talking in the book of Acts and uh, when the Jews weren't around, Peter acted, ate with the Gentiles. When the Jews showed up, then he pulled away and Paul called him on his hypocrisy and said, hey, what are you doing? And a lot of times we buckle under pressure, right? There's a lot of pressure in our culture right now that says it is not okay to be a Christian. We're just sending a flag and a shot across your bow, but we just want you to know uh, it's not okay unless you join our side and think that way that you're, it's not going to go well for you. They haven't gone the net in yet, 
but it isn't very far away. And that kind of pressure can make us go silent. If I just don't say anything, it'll be okay. And, and the pressure can squeeze us. And we, we know that kind of pressure. A persecution. Uh, if you've ever had the experience where you've shared with somebody and it's gone very badly. And then they get mad at you and they, they say something and they, right? It becomes awkward in your neighborhood. We, we don't want to live in our neighborhood and have our neighbors be enemies. So we're afraid of persecution. We're afraid of what that'll do. I, I think all these are pretty reasonable things. And then disobedience. You ever just say no? Right? Nope. Ain't doing it. You can tell me all I want. I ain't doing it. Right? We get that way. You ever just said no? I won't. You know, Jesus said there's two, a father had two sons. One, he said, hey, son, will you go work in the field? And the son said, nope. And then he said, later he regretted it. And then he went and worked in the field. And he went to the second son and said, hey, son, will you go in the field and work? And the son said, oh, yeah, I will, dad, I will. And, and then, but he never went. And Jesus said, which one did the father, actually did the father's will? And they all said the first one, the one who actually went. Right? So it's not thinking about sharing. It's not thinking about being an ambassador. It's the one who actually is an ambassador that is doing the will of the Father. And we'll talk more about that next week. But disobedience can play into it as well. I want to say this on the positive side. Witnessing can do something for us that uh, nothing else on earth can. This is verses found in Philemon. It says that, Paul's writing, it says, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. There is something about sharing what Jesus has done for you with somebody else that gets you to see things in the kingdom you otherwise would never see. There's something about watching the kingdom born into another person that is absolutely exhilarating. It changes the way you... It goes from being church to the Christian life. Because you see God involved in life. That's why camps are such a big thing. You know, right now, uh, camps are running wild, right? Young Life is doing all their camps. They got stuff going on at Malibu and stuff at Washington National Family. And they, they, they're running kids through. And they, what do they come out with? Reports of how many gave their lives to Christ and how many have recommitted their lives. And you read those reports, you go, wow, that's just awesome. Why do people go back sacrificially every year, year after year, some even give up their vacation to run an 80 to 85 hour a week grueling, toiling, in the hot sun deal with teenagers, especially junior high. What would motivate a sane person to do that? Here's what motivates them. They see Jesus. When they see kids pop, when they see the kingdom go boom, when they see tears and they see repent, and they see it, you couldn't trade it. You couldn't pull them out of there. There's something that happens when you see that. And sometimes we're, we keep ourselves isolated away from all that. We never see anything happening, so we just assume God isn't doing anything. So it's really no big deal. I'll do what I'm doing. Once God starts to do something, then I'll get involved. But God is always at work. right? And what this verse says is, Paul's prayer is that we'd be active in sharing our faith. So I do have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Sandy will tell you straight up. She has a hard time witnessing here, but when she goes to Haiti, it's just, just as scary, but they seem more receptive. So she, it, it just energizes her. To, when she comes back, she's at least got stories she can share of what it was like to be in Haiti. And, and she says it makes witnessing a lot easier. Well, if that's what it takes, then go on a mission trip. That's a fabulous idea. If that's what it takes to get you juiced up, 
then we will provide that for you. You let us know. We'll let you go. All right? The issue is about being fruitful. I want to read this verse, these verses to you. In the same way, the gospel, this is out of Colossians here, says the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it's been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Now, let me get you thinking forward to next week with these two questions. If I asked you this morning, is the gospel bearing fruit in my life? The answer would probably be yes, right? If I said to you, is the gospel bearing fruit? Is Jesus changing you? Have you seen significant changes? Absolutely. I mean, I would be, I might be the first one. I'd be like Paul. I'm in awe. There was another Steve before Pastor Steve. Right? And I know some of you don't know that story, but just to give you a little taste, from the time I was 16 to 22, 15 of my friends were killed or maimed just from the stupid stuff we did. There was a whole other guy. So I also am a person at all like Paul. It's not a cardboard story to me. It's very real. Maybe it's correct that. So we would say, yes, absolutely, Steve. The, I can see the changes the Gospels made in my life. But if I ask the question this way, is my life bearing fruit for the gospel? That's a little different question, right? Is my life bearing fruit for the gospel? Is there some tangible evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in my heart that is showing some fruit? That there is something that I can show for God being involved in my life? That's a little different question. Now, I don't want to do that for guilt. I'm not interested in being someone. What I'm interested in is diagnostic looking at it and saying, I know the Lord's changing me. I know the gospel's bearing fruit in my life. Is my life bearing fruit for the gospel? And I want us to think about that. I want us to rest. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up and come forward uh, as we get ready. This song is a great song. It uh, really sets the stage for this closing this message up and then for next week. So I, I want us to... Uh, have you focus on the words this week and, and, and look at the words of this song with the idea of going for next week. Is my life bearing fruit for the gospel? Because we're going to talk about that.